Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Anne-Marie Lockhart, and you're listening to Vox Poetica's 15 Minutes of Poetry. Today is Thursday, August 25th, and I feel I would be very remiss if I did not um, advise anyone on the East Coast to be careful of the weather. Um, as we are speaking, um, everyone and their brother is doing a live uh, news conference about the impending hurricane and letting people know to check out their evacuation routes and to be prepared and all of that. So it's um, it's a lot of excitement. If you're watching the Weather Channel, as I have been, you will appreciate the efforts to which those people are going to um, to make sure we're all informed and to uh, to report this particular weather event in a very enthusiastic manner. Uh, I find it entertaining, hopefully informative too. Hopefully this isn't what they are predicting it will be. Yes, we did also have an earthquake this week, which was also very exciting. So, um, and I know you've all seen the uh, images on the internet of the turned over backyard furniture (laughs) and associated other terrible damage from that, um, not to make light of earthquakes and things like that. And I know our West Coast friends find this very entertaining, but, you know, the Washington Monument is closed because of damage, and so uh, there's a lot of damage at the National Cathedral. So there are places that did suffer a lot of that. um, For us, it's a big deal. All right, that's all I'm going to talk about the weather. I'm going to also say this. It's probably going to make an appearance in some of my own writing over the next, I don't know, few weeks, months, maybe maybe the next year. I don't know. But these things do inspire us, and I hope you all find some way to um, incorporate some of this excitement into your own writing. Now, back to excitement. Um, I hope you've been following the progress of the work in progress, Alice Shapiro's Saltian, which is going to be a book like so many others, but what makes it different is it's been released as a work in progress for commentary. And in case you have not checked that out, go to booksblog.unboundcontent.com and you can see all the postings. Um, Every poem that's going to be in the book is now posted with a critique by a member of the editorial board, of which there are several esteemed members. And these are all open for commentary. I would love for you to comment on any of the poems, the critiques, the comments of other readers. You will find um, critiques in the form of analysis. You will find critiques in the form of responsive writing and responsive art. You will find uh, generalized reactions, a very wide range of reactions and responses to these poems, which was kind of my hope when we set out to do this, that we would get a broad uh, range of different reactions, and I think we have gotten that. Love to get some more. If you have something to say about any one of these particular pieces, please click that comment button on each of those posts and put that word in there. We're about to open phase two of the project, which is Alice is going to be revisiting each poem and editing them for their final form. Um, I don't know what they're going to look like. I don't know if Alice knows what they're going to look like, but um, it should be exciting to see it evolve. 
also in the next phase, I am looking for you to read one of her poems, either in video or audio format, and get that to me. I am easy to find people. You can find me on Facebook, Google me, you know, just simply find me. I'm not really, I don't hide. Um, So get me a reading of one of her works, and you'll be part of uh, a really fun element to this project that is still taking shape. Okay, that's... um, Work in Progress Saltian, and like I said, booksblog.unboundcontent.com. So go check that out and um, lend your voice to the project. Now, today is Ask the Editor, and I know some of you are very, very shy, which I do not understand, Um, but that's okay. We did get a few questions, and um, while some of them were in regard to a cookbook, (laughs) which does look like a very engaging cookbook, I don't know anything about publishing cookbooks. (laughs) So I I also don't know anything about cooking. So in two areas here, I'm at a huge disadvantage. However, I will say, if anyone does know anything about publishing cookbooks, please let me know so I can pass some information on to my friend Drew, who who has a manuscript ready to go and would like some feedback on how to do that. Um, He's considering a number of options, one of which is self-publishing. But if there's anyone who knows how to do this in a formal basis through the traditional channels, would love to talk to you about that. It does. It is a very entertaining cookbook. I did have uh, sneak preview access to it, and it's very funny. It's full of little anecdotes. It's very Jersey, which you know is near and dear to my heart. And it looks like um, the recipes are interesting too. I know Drew's always cooking something um, that looks amazing from his photos. So I, you know, I can only say this looks like an awesome thing. If I knew anything about the genre, I'd say more. So please send me some contacts. Let me find someone who does know about this genre. I also got some poetry publishing questions from Maureen Donatelli, whose work has been published at Vox Poetica. Uh, the first question she asks, what factors go into deciding whether to publish a chapbook or a regular poetry book? Um, and I think she's talking about the difference between a chapbook and a full-length collection. So let's talk a little bit about chapbooks. Historically, a chapbook has been um, a, a very um, homemade type of production sometimes, very individual production sometimes, very artistic production a lot of times. For people who felt their work was either not ready for full length, not um, extensive enough for a full length, or not thematic enough for a full length collection. Sometimes those works were specifically focus based on one subject or maybe five haiku, you know, very targeted. Other times um, people just wanted to avoid the whole, uh, you know, rigmarole of finding a publisher and going through those channels. And they also wanted something a little more personal. A chapbook has been traditionally a very personal um, item and sometimes even a work in progress drafted or not necessarily finished, but more of an experimental phase side of of certain works. A lot of times you would see poems appear in a chapbook and they would later make their way into a a full-length or a formal collection published later in a, in a slightly different, possibly quite edited format. So it's something you could see the origination of and the development of from the different forms of publication. Um, some chapbooks look very artistic with lots of photography or um, paintings, drawings, sketches, things like that intermixed with the poems themselves. 
sometimes they're very artistic in um, almost a more arts and crafts kind of a way. You will find they're sometimes printed um, on homemade paper or, you know, ribbon bound and things like that. They may incorporate elements of a decoupage on the cover. Um, but very personal, very detail-oriented. Lots of times they're very gift-centered, and they originate from the idea of being given as a gift. So there's a lot of variety. And in the history, you can go back, you can go to Poets House. I would urge you to go to Poets House. They do have um, a collection of chapbooks, and you can find so many that are interesting to look at, to touch, to hold in your hands. Um, and they're, you know, mostly not registered at the Library of Congress. or They don't have ISBNs. They weren't formally released in place. But their um, archives there are full of these gorgeous books that I would urge you to take a look at. Um, nowadays, I think that's evolved somewhat differently with the advent of self-publishing and independent presses and a lot more you can do with publishing uh, to the point that um, a lot of times a chapbook is simply a smaller collection of poems than what an author might want to release later or a more focused theme. Um, so you can find them ranging from very small, five, five poems, up to 25 or 30 possibly. Um, maybe that would be the biggest one I have seen. You can do them in print format, and they can look very professional, just basically like a a lower page count version of a professional full-length book. You can find them in e-chapbook format, which is pretty cool these days and it doesn't take much to produce one of those and they're very easily distributable. So there's a lot of variation, a lot of reasons why people would do that is it's a way to start, uh, put something out there, see what you think of it, see if it works, see if you like it, see if you can expand upon it, a way to test the market, a way to test your feet in the water so to speak. Um, and a way to, to kind of put out some different collections that maybe you don't think feel like they fit as part of a bigger collection, but you do want them to be either read together. You feel that the statement they make together is strong enough to warrant that. Um, a lot of it is subjective. There's so much subjectivity in that question. Um, but, but it leads, again, now to the next question. Um, how do authors and editors decide the sequencing of poems? That is an excellent question, and I don't have a simple answer for you. Um, uh, again, there's a lot of gut involved in that. Now, as an editor, I often make changes to the sequencing of a poem in a collection. I do that from a lot of reasons. Some of them are as, as completely um, arbitrary as layout decisions that I make. Um, I usually make those decisions in conjunction with the, the arc of the story. If it's a more narrative collection, um, that is of particular importance, of course. If it's a thematic collection, but they don't necessarily lead one to the next to the next in a more narrative format, then you have a little more leeway there. And I like to um, read the poems a few times myself and let them kind of flow in my own head, see what feels right, see what sounds right, see what makes sense. There are times when um, when things work fairly interchangeably, and I think in that case the author knows what to do best. Sometimes there's a there's a discordant piece. This one doesn't feel right here, but if I put it over there, look how that changes. And um, and those things do make a big difference in the collection, I think. But 
I, I cannot be specific with you about how that happens. I do think a lot of it is the interplay between author and poetry and editor. And when those things all work together and the chemistry is good, I think those things feel very organic and they, the process happens very naturally and on its own. I hope those questions have at least a little bit of an answer for you, Maureen. I would love to talk more about those things. Um, and, you know, we'll explore some of that stuff even in your own writing. You write sometimes about writing, too. So it would be nice to see some of those questions emerge into the art. I have a caller on the line, and I'm assuming this is someone with a question about um, publishing. So let's let's take that and go. Hello, this is Anne-Marie. You're on Vox Poetica's 15 Minutes of Poetry. Oh, hi, Anne-Marie. This is uh, Ray Sharp, the Bard of Laminga, calling. How are you? I'm good, Ray Sharp. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I, I have a poem I'd like to share. It's very short, and it's about a dialogue between or or some instructions from a editor-publisher to a poet, so I thought it might be relevant for today. Uh, awesome. Before I yeah, before I jump into that, I was just thinking as I sat here uh, that um, the changes in in publishing with the new media and social media and electronic and you know all, all the uh, the things that are available to us now, how it's going to change publishing. Uh, and, and I thought to myself, uh, and that that Saltian project with all the the quick interaction from readers mm-hmm. and writer and publishers is, is like an awesome example of that. Um, and simply the the ability to communicate electronically is changing everything. I, and I thought that there are probably six great ages in publishing, and I'd just like to share that with you, the six icons of, of publishing uh, history. The first would be the uh, the cave painter in, you know, uh, painting the... the, the <laughs> the totem animals and the and the painting of the hunt in the Pyrenees. The second would be the stone carver in Egypt with the hieroglyphs, maybe recording, you know, information about the pharaoh's uh, grain stores. The third would be Homer, the blind storyteller, who really gave us, you know, all the conventions of, of the Western uh, story, I believe. The and Odysseus would, himself, right. Yes, yeah, sure. The hero. <laughs> the hero. And and the fourth would be the the medieval scribe or scrivener who's you know copying by hand. The fifth was uh, Gutenberg and movable type, of course, that made uh, you know that made books accessible to the world and and less expensive. And I think mm-hmm, the sixth would mm-hmm. yeah the sixth would be Anne Marie Lockhart and uh, what's <laughs> happening with with new media and the electronic information age. So I I, I think um, that's how the history will be written. I, you know, I have to inform those people at Disney that they have to put my image in the, um, oh, that, you know, whatever that big spaceship Earth thing is or, or whatever it is, and they have the whole history of publishing in there. I need to be in there. I'm going to tell them you said so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, but I think you would probably be one of those animated robots that would be uh, singing It's a Small World after all. So I would, uh, anyway, I enjoy that. <laughs> here's, my, here's my poem. Um, is one of my favorite poems because the first three lines are uh, a, a, is a discussion about how to write a good poem by focusing on the detail. And then it pivots mm-hmm. to be a, a love poem. And in the last line, it comes back to the title image. So uh, 
I like it also because it's got the appropriate sounds of the words. They're all B's and S's and F's, and they're the soft sounds that go along with the feeling of the poem. So I'll go ahead and read that. It's called Snowflake. Write your poem, she told me. Not about a snowstorm, but rather a snowflake. That is how she came to me. Not with bliz and bluster, fizz and fluster, but soft and selene, floaty, flirty, melt on my shirty, crystalline, one of a kind. Now that poem appeared at Vox Poetica. It was published, I want to say, last winter. I'd have to look that up to get that totally right. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was part of a two-poem appearance. Was it not? Snow poems? Two it, poems? I believe that, it. No. I believe it was uh, December 2009, but I'm not sure if it was at Vox Poetica or if it was in a uh, if it was in uh, the collaborative project, the well, Alice Shapiro collaboration. It might have been in you know it could have been in at this point in time we've been doing this a long time and these poems could have appeared anywhere. <laughs> there's there's but, so many. There's so many poems floating around in in this new age of publishing. I mean, just think about it. We can bring our poems to a wider audience in a day than uh, than Emily Dickinson did in her lifetime. So, uh, you know, that's that's what's going on with publishing now. And what I wanted to say, too, in regard to that particular poem, and I had just mentioned it in light of um, Maureen's questions, you know, writers write about writing all the time. People forget how much of a topic that is for us, um, writing about what we do. And and I don't know if it's interesting to anyone other than writers. I hope so. I mean, I love it. I love poems about writing. These are things I find interesting. Um, but, But... Aside from that, for a moment, that bit of advice there, it makes me think of a haiku, and that's, I think, one of the keys to haiku is to really focus, focus in on a detail, not a huge, not a huge scope, but on a small, small thing, which then becomes emblematic of something much larger. And you develop that poem in exactly that way. It's not a long poem. It's a short. It's not a haiku, but it's not a long poem. But it starts with that you know, advice to focus, and then it takes that focus, and it doesn't it doesn't expand a description out far from a snowflake, but it links to it, and that makes a broader statement, and I, that's kind of the thing that makes the whole thing work, don't you think? It does. That was the poet's intent was to take that to, to take that advice to write not about the snowstorm, but rather the snowflake, and then use that to to talk about how a relationship a love uh relationship developed and talk about it in the in terms of the small gestures and relate those gestures back to the snowflake melt on my shirty crystalline right. one of a kind so it comes back right. to the idea of a, of how how some things that happen to us in our lives are like things in nature it's not always the big crash of thunder but it sometimes it's the one uh, snowflake that's a fragile uh, ephemeral thing so um, this time like uh, for once for once I got the language to go along with the with the mood and the meaning and and uh, it all worked so it was just you know one of those lucky things so that's why I wanted to share that and it actually did appear at Vox Poetic. I'm looking at it here in December of 2009. It was part of two poems of snow the first was a poem called snow angel they were both short 
poems. Um, in some That's regards, right. classic Ray Sharp poems. In other ways, not so much. Different mood in both of them. But um, this one, the one that you just read, is particularly playful, and the language really expresses that. The other one that you had put up there was a little, well, you know, one of your classic themes of death. <laughs> and then and then they were reprinted in the collaborative uh, art project along with a, 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 yes. photo- a, a musician from in England who was also a photographer, and it's someone right. I never would have met right. without the Internet. Right, getsparked.org, and that was, um, I don't remember which round that was, but you're absolutely right. Those are, you used, that is the inspiration, and the musician wrote um, some music in response to it, and those, oh no, it was a photographer. It was a photographer. He is a, he's a songwriter, but it was photography. And that's like, you know, that is the new, this, uh, the sixth great uh, trend in publishing, and, and you're, you know, right smack in the middle of it. So I think that's what's well, really cool right now that that these new media are you know uh, helping connect us for our inspiration and our art networking. And the fact that we can have conversations like this either on the internet or over the blog talk radio world or Skype people Skype these things all the time. Um, I had another question that came up to me that I I wanted to briefly share. I know I'm over time here, but you're all gonna have to wait. The um, you're gonna listen because you all want to listen. That's why you're tuning in. The um, what, what do writers do to connect? And this relates to what Ray is saying. This small world that we live in now, this interconnectedness that we have, makes it so easy to find. You know, the question was specifically: I don't share my poetry with my family or my closest friends because they tend not to offer me much criticism, creative advice. So where do I go to find that? Oh, what a question. <laughs> okay, you go to find that, well, amongst your own like kind. So you can go online. You know, you can connect with me on Facebook and a lot of other people who are connected to me on Facebook who have groups already set up. You can meet some of those people and join their groups. Some of those are online mostly. Some of them are in person. You can join an organization like Hampton Roads Writers, and that puts you in touch with other people who are looking for that type of interaction as well. There's always something going on when these broader organizations oversee a lot of different people in the creative enterprise. So seek those kinds of forums out. You can start your own. And I can guarantee you, if you were to put on Facebook, starting a literary criticism group, focusing on, you know, whatever your genre is, you will get interest. People will respond to that. And you can set that up in whatever way is most comfortable for you. But it is critical to have a group of people that you trust, that you trust with your work. Um, Go on a writer's retreat and see what the people there are like. I have a writer's retreat that I go to annually um, that has worked so nicely for me. It's a totally safe space for me to put my work out there and, and get feedback from it. And I revisit that during the year, you know, between one retreat and the next. I revisit the the commentary that I got and I take another look at the work and I have pieces that evolve over the entire year based upon that one extended weekend away for that purpose. So I highly urge find a way to, you know, click with some event like that. Try a few of them, see which one feels more natural, but you have to open yourself up and you have to open yourself up to a little broader sphere. You know, sometimes 
family is wonderful and they're very proud of what you do. Possibly they may not always understand it. <laughs> they may not always be as interested. That's okay. You know, there are other people who get who get what you do, and um, those people love nothing more than being called on to be part of someone else's support. So take advantage of that. This age of the Internet has made things so much easier for us to share our words and our experiences. Um, Ray, you do local readings sometimes. Do you, any any kind of local writers groups that you found particularly helpful, or or no? Well, uh, going to an in-person uh, uh, monthly uh, or sort of um, semi-monthly uh, poetry reading in my area also connected me with some writers who started a uh, writers workshop, and it's a little uh, Facebook group with seven members, and so. Were you know we we had last month posted uh, two to three poems and we critiqued each other's in the comment section and then this month is a uh, short fiction, so it's a combination there of meeting people in person and yeah. uh, and and a Facebook group. Yep, and I mean and that's that's the beauty of where where we are today that you can do that and expand those interactions in a way that you couldn't even even ten years ago it wasn't so easy to do. So, you know, I I really think it's critical to be able to share your work with someone, you know, whomever that may be, and, and sometimes the broader the group the better. Maybe not you know 150 people in the group that might be just a little too much, but. You know, a, a group of about half a dozen people sounds about right, maybe up to a dozen, maybe people that come and go as they can. Um, you know, start your own, find one, go look for one. Don't be afraid to, you know, try a few and see which ones feel best, but definitely find a place to share your work and to um, experiment. You have to be able to experiment as a writer if you're going to develop your craft. So um, Facebook is a great place to do that. People do, um, we're very, very happy to comment on each other's work all the time. I know I'm sometimes invited to um, comment on something and people will tag me in some of their pieces and I try and give feedback wherever I can on that. And those are not necessarily formal writing groups, but they're places where people are working on something, they're workshopping something, and I'm very respectful of the workshopping process and think we all need more of it. So I would urge you to do some of that. Um, we're totally out of time. I'm totally over time. <laughs> They're going to throw me off Blog Talk Radio. We may be. Um, it may not even be broadcasting at this point. But if it is, what not. I'll do now is I will post a, a link to your radio show at raysharp.wordpress.com where I print my poems, and then people will go to your radio show and. Uh, um, somebody is probably uh, listening to this now, and they saw a link on Facebook that we'll post in a few minutes, and that's how it goes round and round. Awesome, and I love that, and that's a beautiful thing. And I also want to say, in case you know you have some questions, any of you listening that occur to you later that you might want to ask, find me on Facebook, inbox me, put it in a comment, whatever. Get that question to me somehow, and I will make sure that we get some kind of answer to you. Hopefully it will be useful <laughs> to you. I don't always know <laughs> that all of this advice is very useful, but I hope so. Um, in the meantime, thank you for calling in, Ray Sharp, with a beautiful reading and uh, for lending your your experience to the dialogue and for making me an icon of publishing. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Anne-Marie. Have a good day, and good luck with the storm. 
Oh, thanks. Well, I'll be keeping everybody posted. And listen, that's one quick thing I want to say on my way out the door here. If there's no uh, Vox Politica updates on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, what have you, <laughs> you know that we really did get hit by the hurricane. I have no power. So um, I'm hoping that outcome is avoided, and um, we're all hoping for that, I suppose. That's a really good thing if we don't have any damage. I don't want to keep those insurance companies busy. God knows those people don't want to have too much to do. Um, Thank you for listening, everyone. Good luck with the next week. Stay safe, stay dry, and write. If you have nothing else to do and can't watch much TV, you might as well take out a pen and start writing something. Um, Be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.